and welcome to episode 13 of That 60s Recording Podcast. Um, my name is Joe Montague and I am your host. Um, I hope you've had a lovely couple of weeks. Um, had a lot of uh, great feedback from the last episode. Ed is such a lovely guy and so knowledgeable. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed making these episodes. And it, obviously it's a bit of a first having... Um, the episode spread out in split up into two different um, sort of digest digestible chunks. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed that as well. Um, had a, an interesting email from uh, a friend of mine in Germany called Nils, um, who is uh, hopefully uh, is listening to this um, with a a couple of uh, little points. He's a, he plays George Harrison in a German Beatles band. Um, and uh, he's got some cool projects on the horizon, so uh, I'll I'll keep you posted when they arrive. Um, but anyway, what he was talking, uh, what he emailed me about, um, I'm just getting my emails up so I can read them uh, and be accurate with it. Um, we're talking about when the first guitar pickups um, were made, uh, and uh, apparently they were actually made by Adolf Rickenbacker um, and a chap called George. Uh, I've got Beauchamp or Bucamp or whatever, however you pronounce that, in the early 30s um, for a lap steel, um, which is uh, pretty interesting. Um, and it's uh, used on a guitar called the Frying Pan, um, which I'm going to put a link to in the show notes because uh, that's quite a, uh, imagine, a, yeah, that's quite a cool cool name for a guitar. Um, yeah, and uh, another little piece of information that was quite interesting um, was that the... Uh, Telecaster was actually built to sound like a steel uh, guitar, um, which uh, sort of in the Western swing style. Um, and uh, he want uh, so Leo Fender wanted to make a steel guitar sound, but on a solid body guitar, um, which is where the Telecaster uh, came into invention. So thanks, Nils, for for getting in touch with those things. Um, Always, always welcome, and I'm I'm finding this really interesting because I'm learning a whole load of new stuff about guitars. Um, right, so um, yeah, let's get straight on with today's episode. Oh, in fact, before we do that, I have one one small announcement to make. Um, if you follow me on Instagram and you subscribe to my drum stems, um, you will have seen today, or it'll be yesterday now, or whenever you're listening to it. So Monday, um that I'm now doing the drum stems weekly. Um, so rather than fortnightly. Um, so I, my, my kids are at uh, nursery and at childminders now. So I've got a bit more free time during the day. And I wanted to, I've just enjoyed making these stems so much. And I get such a lot of good feedback from them um, that I, I just, I just want to do them every week. I've just got, I've got so many and there are so many Beatles songs to get through that the idea of, uh, chipping away at them fortnightly it was too slow for me so i wanted to move a bit faster um so if you visit my website all you need is drums.com you can sign up for the mailing list there it's completely free um i have put a paypal donate button on there and um, which i said on instagram today i was in two minds as to whether to do that because i mean the podcast and the stems are not something i'm doing to make money out of it's just something i really enjoy doing i get to chat with some amazing people about a really special time of um, of music history and I get to recreate some Ringo drum parts which I thoroughly enjoy doing and I probably do it anyway um, well I mean I'm doing it anyway so uh, yeah the, the point is if you want to to donate to support it then you're welcome to and if you don't want to that's also fine um, you know ultimately it does take a lot of my time up and uh, I do enjoy it but we, we do have to make a living so I've just put it there as a as an option but it's not a uh, it's it is what it is. There we go. Okay, so uh, yeah, so sign up for that to get your weekly weekly stems. And tomorrow's one I'm doing, or today's one, which you'll, uh, if you're listening to this tomorrow, <laughs> you won't have seen yet. I'm doing a day in the life um, just to celebrate 80 years of John Lennon. I know Paul's got a bit in there as well, but I just thought uh, there's one, it's a track I get asked for a lot. Um, so I thought it'd be cool to do that. Um, yeah, which wasn't what I was planning on doing, but it's been a really fun one because uh, there's loads of cool drumming in that. Okay, now I will get on with the episode. So this is um, episode two of my chat with Ed Alesco, um, who writes for guitar.com. Um, so we start off by talking about uh, Marshall and Marshall Amps and how that kind of, uh, where he fits in with 
um the sort of uh, canon of um sort of guitar gear so that's where this conversation goes so i hope you enjoy could we um can i just ask it's almost this is a uh i suppose it's a little bit of a selfish question but i'm interested um so the, the city i grew up in is where is the home of marshall um which is milton Keynes. but obviously milton Keynes was only born in the 80s so he wasn't there all the time um but i'm interested in so uh just to give a, a bit of context to the listeners about this question so before we we did this interview um ed sent me a loose time frame that we might discuss and one of the things you mentioned is marshall struggling to get hold of um fender amps um presumably in london this is in a shop in london so decided yep. then to start making his own and ha- i'm surprised that we don't really see marshall feature in in the beatles um chronology and how does he how does marshall sort of fit in with the 60s sound yeah that's again super really good question actually um yeah jim marshall had um a music shop in hanwell in london um jim marshall was a jazz drummer you'll be pleased to know (laughs) and he was massively into drums and he played drums and it was sold drums basically um but had a music shop, so people came in wanting all sorts of things. Linked to that whole trouble to get hold of American gear, Fender tweed amps of the late 50s, you know, 56, 57, 58, um, were the pinnacle of amps. Guitarists wanted these amps, and getting hold of them was an absolute nightmare. Um, trade embargo or just the sheer difficulty of getting them shipped over to the UK and so on. So Jim Marshall and a couple of his friends hit upon the idea of building their own one. And, you know, it's no surprise everyone in the sort of guitar world sort of knows this. The first Marshall JTM 45 um, is an exact copy of a Fender Bassman to the circuit. And all all they did differently was use what components they could get in Britain. (laughs) So the speakers were British Celestian speakers and they decided to put two or four in a cabinet. And hence the four by 12 cab was born or the two by 12 combo. 2x12 combo was pretty much born in the Marshall JTM45 combo, and which later became the Blues Breaker, was used by Eric Clapton on that um, album we mentioned earlier, the Blues Breaker album, or the Beano album, sorry, and was nicknamed the Blues Breaker afterwards because it featured on that album. But that amp was a 2x12 so that Eric could fit it in the boot of his car. <laughs> what a story! Yeah, and all these massive things in musical history... Uh, have these tiny little things. Four by twelve cabs came around from Marshall trying to get bigger and bigger sounds and bigger amps. They made some eight by twelves, which the Who used for a while. And then the Who's roadies complained they were too big and heavy to lug around, so they chopped them in half and made four by twelves. They couldn't. They couldn't go any lower. Um, the reason they had the eight by twelves at the time. Um, and then they had to use two 4 by 12 cabs in a stack, was at this point, the, the early Marshall amps, again, players were coming back all the time wanting louder and louder and louder amps because audience were getting bigger and more raucous. You've heard with the Beatles, all the screaming and stuff. They needed amps to get bigger. Nowadays, we can plug through really good PA systems and be relatively quiet on stage and, and send that sound out to the front. I mean, arguably, I, I don't like being quiet on stage. I like volume. Um, but that that's a whole nother debate, which we'll talk about maybe another time. The argument of stage volume and engineers nowadays telling us all to be quiet and down. Um, you don't get the same response. You don't get the same tone, all the rest of it. But in those days, it was 100 watt amps because that's where the sound was coming from to the audience, from the stage, from the back forward. You think of Jimi Hendrix and those, you know, cream, the late 60s, big Marshall stacks behind him, a couple of you know, four by twelves, four or five, you know, each side pushing out. That was the sound. They they were barely even mic'd up. A few mics on the drums, just all that sound. Guitarists wanted louder and louder and bigger amps. Um, the technology was struggling to keep up. The Celestian speakers in the UK were to start with 15 watt speakers. So you'd have four of those in a four by twelve cab would make about a 60 watt handling. Um, for a hundred watt head. Marshall head which peaked at about 120 140 watts if you used one 4x12 cab you'd blow up all your speakers <laughs> you know they soon developed stronger and stronger powering powered speakers to handle and so on um but yeah so the Marshall sound was massive through the 60s and you think of those groups and again where I'd argue that technical equipment had a massive artistic impact is bands like Jimi Hendrix and then the Who 
um, Cream, Led Zeppelin, where you've got uh, a power trio, three instruments, drums, loud bass, loud guitar, could only happen with big loud amplifiers. If you're trying to have a power trio when you've got um, an acoustic upright bass and a little 10, 15 watt combo, you get Elvis Presley, <laughs> which is not to degenerate that, but it's a different sound. Yes. If you if you put those same players pretty much playing the same music and riffs through a couple of 100-watt Marshall stacks on either side of the stage, you go from Jailhouse Rock to the first Led Zepp album, <laughs> you know? Um, and again, because the amps were louder, drummers played louder. You know, drummers wanted to be heard more, so close miking of the drums, so the drums were all clear. Um, that happened live, which then sort of happened in the studio. Um, and again, bringing it back to the Beatles, the drum sounds developed. They were close micing them with Jeff Emmerich from sort of uh, Revolver onwards. Again, because the boys were coming in with louder and louder amps, you know, so like they needed to hear the drums, that early drum sound of one mono overhead and perhaps one kick drum mic or something wouldn't cut it if you had the, the studio with the big amps, you know. Um that Marshall didn't feature much for the Beatles, again, because I think they were pragmatic. There's perhaps a, one big reason was that the deal we mentioned earlier on with Vox and Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager in Vox, part of the deal for the Beatles to have this free equipment was they would only use that equipment. So until Brian died, um, which was just around sort of the beginning of the, before the White Album period, you know, they, before the Beatles went to India, um, they pretty much exclusively used Vox equipment. Um, once he died, then that sort of opened the door for other companies to come knocking for the Beatles and Fender got in there then and got them a bunch of Fender guitars and Fender amplifiers, which you you basically see a switch from the Beatles using Vox amps to Fender amps um, around the time of the White Album, which then continued through the rest of their career. Um, what they didn't do was use Marshall amps and... Mm. Who knows why? I mean, George was big fan, big fan and big friend with Eric. Um, when Eric Clapton came in and played on While My Guitar Gently Weeps, it's it's possibility that he brought one of his Marshall amps in because the tone on that is is a bit different. Um, he but then he used George's guitar, the Les Paul that he gave George, that Gibson Les Paul, Lucy the red one. So uh, my argument would be, well, if he didn't come prepared with his own guitar to play on. I doubt he'd have bothered to bring his own amp to the studio. So it, it probably is one of the Beatles amps and probably a cranked Fender amp on that track. But mm. people argue it could could well be a Marshall. Um, the other reason they probably didn't use Marshalls, Marshalls became synonymous with the power trio, that big, you know, 67, 68, 69, like I say, the Who, um, High Watts as well, but we'll call them Marshalls for this time, this sort of argument. Led Zeppelin, Three, those sorts of bands. Well, they were big stage amps, which those bands then got as their sound and they brought them back in the studio. By that point, the Beatles had given up touring. Mm. So they were back in the studio and actually reverted to using smaller and smaller amps. You know, they found that the their last live gigs in the big Shea Stadium and the final tours, they had these big Vox 100-watt stacks. They were sort of solid state by that, by that point, or hybrid certainly and stuff. Sergeant Peppers, they brought those amps sort of back into the studio and Vox were always giving them the latest things and so on. Um, but they started to realise that actually the sounds that they liked in a studio don't have to be a massive amp cranked up. You know, it can be small. And they went back to, you know, come time as sort of the White Album, Sergeant Peppers and stuff, they were using small little combos and much of, um, you know, the later albums, Let It Be and Abbey Road and all that sort of stuff was just smaller Fender combos again. Twins, mm. perhaps some of them as well, which are quite loud Fender combos, but still it's not huge, great, hulking Marshall stacks behind them. Probably <laughs> because they probably because they didn't need to, you know? So it could be as simple as that, you know? Um, this might be a, a good opportunity to uh, sort of discuss the evolution of um, miking techniques. I mean, I, I record... Uh, crudely record guitar at my studio and i i know the principles of of sort of miking you know the uh which i'm sure a lot of the listeners do you know where you you place your um your microphone in between the the, the center of the cone and the edge of the cone but i don't know 
I don't know anything at all about the development of guitar making, if there even is one, if there is different guitar making techniques that produce different sounds. And uh, what was what was happening from say the late fifties through to the to the sort of seventies in in terms of making up guitar amps? Yeah, um, good question. I guess really, again, it follows the technical technical development of the guitars, the amps, and probably principally volume. Um, in the you know, late fifties, early sixties, bands would be coming in, as we said, quite acoustic. Um, recording techniques were very simplistic at the time. Often it was to two track or four track. Um, you know, the first Beatles stuff was recorded to two track. Then the first f fair few albums were recorded to four track. Although they'd have multiple mixes mixing down from a few more sources, sound sources from that. Arguably, they were still trying to capture the sound in a room. Um, so things were more distant mic'd, drums were distant mic'd, amps were a bit more distant mic'd. There are pictures of the early albums where they'd have like a Neumann condenser on um, perhaps George's amp, it might be a 47 or something. Then they'd perhaps have a Neumann KM54 or 56, a smaller sort of pencil mic on John's amp to try and get slight differentiation between the two amps and the sounds for recording. Um, but again, these amps weren't massively cranked, hence that whole jangly sort of sound we talked about. Um, though, because they weren't that loud, they could use these highly sensitive, you know, what we'd now call massively expensive mics. <laughs> um, ribbon mics were used, um, but not hugely with the Beatles on the guitar amps. Again, probably because they were too, too loud for the ribbons, even though it was... Um, you know they weren't as loud as they could be um certainly if you put a, a marshall stack in front of a, a coles it will probably destroy it um <laughs> but again they wanted more sound and they the, the condensers gave them a big wide frequency range a, a good sound i think gen very generally speaking if we take the the points on, in musical history in the 60s as the beatles early jangly sound and all the pop that was around that time everything was quite distant mic'd really roughly speaking um when you hit clapton and that famous beano album with that big crunchy hugely loud sound which is a marshall jtm 45 turned up to 10 um the studio engineers where he recorded it which i think was decker or one of those sort of studios they didn't like it so what they did was they moved the mic further and further away from the amp um in order not to blow up the amp um, that led to this big roomy sound, which was used on all these sorts of things. Live, um, bands had to use dynamic mics. You know, the early 60s, you'll see Beatles live, they might be singing into like a Reslo ribbon mic and so on. But as as the, as the bands and things got louder through the 60s, Beatles stopped touring, but like we talked about, those big bands, Cream, Led Zeppelin and so on, playing these huge live three, The Who big live live concerts hugely live sound on stage dynamic mics took over and i think those dynamic mics just worked their way into the studio because they could handle this big power um and they got used on drums um the akg d19 uh, which we'll have a conversation about later um <laughs> made its way into the beatles they were used on drums because they had lots of them in the studio and they could handle the the high pressure sound um but dynamics like that and the Shure SM57, what eventually became the Shure SM57, was then ubiquitously used on guitar amps through the sort of, you know, late 70s, 80s, 90s, still to this day. Arguably, recently, there's been a resurgence in ribbon technology because people are realising, I mean, I love ribbon mics and I use a bunch of old sort of ribbon mics in my studio and stuff um, for capturing sounds, especially from smaller combos, you know. Uh, you can you can get some great sounds with ribbons again. There's some great ribbon mics being produced today, um, which can handle louder sources and so on. Um, yeah, I hope that somehow answers the question. No, I think it does. <laughs> I mean, just touching on that, the, one of the uh, I think third episode of this this podcast, we spoke to Stuart. Um, I've forgotten what is it, Taverner, um, who runs Exordia, and he. Um, they have a microphone that is a, a ribbon specially adapted for handling louder um, uh, louder sounds in general and guitar sounds. And I know that there's some touring acts that use his ribbons um, on their guitar cabs for that Brilliant. reason. Yeah. I just, so, so moving back to, to sort of guitars in that case, um, 
are we um, the sort of chronology or the timeline that I've got it's stuff it seems to move quite quickly towards sort of 66 and then around about the recording of Rubber Soul it tends it seems to slow down a little bit and there's not a huge amount of change in the back end of the 60s is that because they've they've got a, you know they've got a big arsenal of guitars and a lot of the sounds are covered or maybe it's because they're not touring so they're not meeting as many people who are giving them things or what's why am I well first of all am I correct in assuming that the stuff has slowed down or has it not um in terms of them acquiring instruments um or are the techniques changing or what's the what happens towards the later end of the 60s ultimately yeah exactly that I think because they stopped touring um George was quite the um, enthusiast for new guitars and you see through you know mid to late period Beatles and we're taking this from sort of rubber soul to 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 let it be the final albums you know their most creative period when they were just studio musicians George goes through a bunch of guitars you know they they get him and John get strats but George barely uh, John barely played his whereas George used his quite a lot um, and it became that famous he painted it all psychedelic and he used it on the yes. international uh, all you need is love broadcast and so on he that rocky he called it and it then became he used yeah. that for slide and his solo career and so on he also got hold of a, a Gibson SG um, a Gibson 345 um, they got hold of some Martin acoustics um, so George had quite a bunch of guitars until about the period of the White Album when Eric Clapton gave him this Gibson Les Paul and he seemed to really fall for that guitar and he used that loads on you know on the later albums, on White Album, on Abbey Road. I mean, my favourite guitar tone probably is his solo on something, which is that Gibson Les Paul. Um, yeah. And... You know, he does phenomenal sort of work with that. But then again, he had the Rosewood Fender Telecaster that was given to him that he used on the Let It Be rooftop concert. Um, but yeah, I think they didn't use many other things because they were settled in the studio and they they experimented with what they had. You know, they had a few new things coming in, but um, they experimented with the guitars they had. They used different amplifiers, different effects, you know, the whole double tracking, the use of the, you know, the ADT to get that wobbly sound. Um, but they were quite pragmatic and loyal. Like I say, John in particular, you know, he had that Rickenbacker for the first four or five years. He went to his casino and pretty much stuck with that, <laughs> you know. Um, he played a, a Strat on Nowhere Man with, with George, but quickly put it aside. You know, he had a Gretsch, which he played a little while, but again, didn't really possibly saw use on rubber soul uh, didn't you know george moved through his um his sg which i think he used on taxman um but then that got the les paul came along um and they yeah they changed their amps to fender that was a big change in their sound mm -hmm. um the later beatles albums but alongside the recording techniques i think the the change in the equipment at abbey road or emi it was at the time massively changed their sound as well they had all the valve desks and the valve preamps for the early albums and then abbey road was recorded with this new solid state tg one two three four five desk which was later used on like pink floyd's dark side of the moon and stuff you know so it's it's a slightly smoother less less aggressive sound um, less punchy ever so slightly i mean we're talking intricacies of <laughs> yes. nerdy geekdom that most people but i think if as a vibe if you think of abbey road as an album not just the songs because there's some punchy tracks on there but the overall vibe of it is a bit more laid back and chilled yes and um, and that sonics of that album i would argue then and because of the way technology the desk and the preamps changed arguably became almost a template for the sound of the 70s soft mid-tempo rock of the eagles and those sorts of bands mm. um and it's that slightly laid back chilled vibe i know things in society affected that and songwriting and music developed into jamming and all this sort of stuff <laughs> um but i think yeah the the, the equipment definitely had a, a big effect on on their sound and then they had such an influence in the world that what they were using influenced other people you know what's the the story of the sg um, that's a guitar that, I, I mean, I could be completely wrong here, but I just I see 
ACDC and yep. George. And that's it. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't see it before George. I don't see it between George and ACDC. And I haven't yeah. really seen it past ACDC. I mean, how, how does that fit into all this? The um, Coming back to what I was saying earlier about the Gibson Les Paul, which nowadays we know, you know, arguably the two biggest guitars nowadays are Fender Strat, Gibson Les Paul. You know, everyone on the street who's got no idea of guitars recognises those guitars. Well, the Gibson Les Paul was a flop. Um, it started off as the gold top in the 52. The first one came out with Les Paul himself, the actual musician. He had a bit of a help. There was a flaw with the bridge and the neck angle and so on. But long story short, it developed. They relaunched it in 58 with a sunburst finish, two double path pickups, patent applied for humbucking pickups. And it was this big, wow, this is the new thing. And they just didn't sell. I mean, there's between 1958 and... 1959 and 1960 there's about 1500 les pauls were made and sold um the joke goes that nowadays there's about 3000 left surviving <laughs> because there's so they're, they're worth so much now that there's a lot of counterfeits and fakes and conversions and so on out there um but these guitars weren't loved they were too heavy they didn't fit the music of the time and it wasn't until eric clapton uh, Mike Bloomfield over in the States, and then artists like Jimmy Page following on from Eric Clapton's big distorted Les Paul into Marshall sound. And that whole lead guitar thing spanned a massive, and Peter Green with Fleetwood Mac, now that another Les Paul user, um, that they became popular again. And then all the artists in the late 60s bought up these old 50s secondhand Les Pauls. Gibson eventually reintroduced the Les Paul in 68, 69. They actually got it wrong and reintroduced the wrong model. But again, that's the story for another day. Where this is affected, <laughs> linked to the SG is, the SG was the replacement model. So a Les Paul with its double humbuckers pickup, two pickups, and the ABR bridge and the stop tailpiece and the, the neck and so on. They Gibson wanted a more flashy, um, less heavy, cumbersome, less old-fashioned-y looking guitar than the Les Paul. So in 61, they brought up the SG solid guitar, only it was actually still called a Les Paul up until about 1962, 63. Ah. So the first, the first SGs, as we know them now, are actually still called Les Paul guitars. Um, and they were the replacement model. Got rid of the old one, this slim, spiky, modern-looking thing, you know, competing with a Stratocaster. It's far more sexy angles and so on. Um, was brought out. Les Paul himself hated it, so demanded his ne his name be taken off it, which is why it then became the SG. Um, as for usage, um, yeah, George had one for a while. I think then when he got his actual Les Paul as a gift from Eric Clapton, he, he actually gave that SG away to somebody from a band called Badfinger, yes. um, who then went on to use it and so on. Um, but yeah, you know, George used an SG... Other bands did use them. Obviously, ACDC massively. You just think ACDC, SG. I guess into modern times, you've got bands like um, Stereophonics massively use the SG. Um, people wanting a slightly different but still Gibson-y, Les Paul sort of sound. You know, they actually became quite big in metal world as well, the whole pointy, spiky sort of looking, aggressive guitars. Yeah, it's a, it's a surprising looking guitar to see somebody like George playing, I suppose. And if... It, to my mind, it's a slightly more aggressive sound than um, than a Les Paul. Would that? Would you say that that's correct? Definitely. Um, yeah. Good ears. <laughs> yeah, it feels a bit brighter and th slightly thinner. Definitely. Uh, I think basically you've got exactly the same hardware and pickups as a Les Paul, but a Les Paul is a massive solid chunk of mahogany and then a maple cap on top of it, and that gives that big thick woody tone. SG is. I mean, it's not half as thick, but it feels half as thick. You know, they're much thinner, much lighter, all mahogany, and th that gives a different tone. You know, you've got the same pickups, but it just goes to show how much of the effect the wood has. You've effectively got a bit less bass, and what that happens is you get more pronounced mid-range and top then because there's less bass in the guitar sound, you know? Yes. Was there... Um, this might feel like a stupid question, but nowadays we've got a lot of... Um, sort of uh, Chinese copies of guitars and there's Fender has its Squire range and um, I mean not quite the same but Gibson has Epiphone so you can have an right. Epiphone yeah, Les Paul almost exactly the same yeah 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 yeah. I, I suppose 
Epiphone might have a, a little bit more quality. You know, uh, you might respect the quality slightly more. I, I, I'm not sure. I just I'm always careful treading around Epiphone because <laughs> I don't want because I know they made some beautiful guitars. You know, back when they were their own company. To be fair, they they still do. I mean, um, it is massively murky waters because under the Squire and Epiphone banners, you've got everything from the budget of the most budget Squires that you get in the Argos catalogue, <laughs> or you did, you know, back yeah. in the day, um, up to some of the first Squires that came out made in Japan were better guitars and better built guitars than the American ones at the time, <laughs> you know? Um, and then the same with Epiphone. Uh, in the 80s, Epiphone made some guitars over in Japan part of the whole lawsuit era where they made sort of the they were the official gibson sort of brand so they could still make them but other companies sometimes using the same factories tokai greco things that were making copies but these guitars were built so well they were arguably as good if not better than um gibson's i mean take for example the first oasis album definitely maybe they were famous for using these epiphone guitars which those 80s uh japanese made epiphones are every bit as good as a gibson um, and coming full circle to today, to be fair, some of the most modern recent Epiphones, um, since Gibson has had a rebrand re and a relaunch and new ownership and stuff, they're phenomenally good guitars. You know, if for people starting out or even just, you know, you want a very good guitar for not too much money, I'd recommend Epiphone every day of the week. Fantastic. As with the Squires, there's some great Squires made nowadays by Fender. Um, I have a Squire and uh, my dad's got a, a 50... It's a fifties. He'll he'll thank me for saying this because he listens to this and he'll love it. He's got a, <laughs> um, it's a fifties copy, uh, Squire copy, but I think it's a a Japanese one or something yeah. from um from when he was young. So I'm assuming it's the seventies. I don't want to insult my dad. <laughs> it would it would probably be uh, an eighties Japanese Squire. Um, but yeah, as I alluded to, those those first ones made in Japan when Fender shipped out some business over there. Some of the very first ones got a massive Fender logo and a tiny Squire logo. Mm. And they're still Squire guitars, but they're every bit as good, if not arguably better, than the quality that was being produced by Fender USA at the time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, good good job, Joe's dad. You keep hold of that one. <laughs> well, it's we took it to a luthier because um, it needs a refret. And... Um, and we took it to a luthier, and he, the, he said, "It's this is a beautiful guitar, and it's worth a lot more than my dad paid for it." <laughs> yeah, um, definitely, it is lovely. Um, I think you may have uh, you may have sort of uh, slightly answered the question I was going to ask, really, which is, I know from a drummer's perspective, if um, any there's a there's a lot of a uh, say student model drum kits that you can get that from from the sixties that are still high quality things you know they've got fewer lugs on them but that gives them a slightly different tone it's not necessarily better or worse it's yeah. just a it's just different and do you think a lot of the uh, uh, a lot of influence on the sound of the 60s came from uh the fact that perhaps there was better craftsmanship um of of things or was there cheap alternatives to these that that were being used you know was there cheaper models of of these guitars because it feels like um you know the beatles at the start of their career stumbled across quite high quality instruments right at the very beginning you know even down to ringo's premier drum kit was a um you know cheaper model drum kit but it's still a beautiful drum kit that is sought after today and i'm kind of interested now there's yeah. a lot of very cheap instruments and it doesn't feel quite that way in the 60s it feels like everything's quite high quality I'd answer that um, with a very simple yes and no. <laughs> and Definitely, I'll try, maybe. I'll, tr I'll try. Yeah, I'll try and contextualise. Um, arguably, the cheap budget instruments now, the guitars of the the fifties and sixties, often lots of them were terrible quality um, and very difficult to play. If you pick up a Hofner forty, like John's early ones, or some of the early acoustics they can be very hard to actually play. Um, the top brands of that era, the 50s Fenders and Gibsons, 
are unsurpassed in their quality. They were made by craftsmen. In Gibson's case, perhaps guys who'd been working for 20, 30 years sculpting violins and mandolins and real top-quality instruments applied that knowledge and technical skill to guitars. Fenders, on the other hand, were more made to be mass-produced, but Leo Fender was a design genius, and some of the craftsmen, they were still hand-shaping the necks and stuff, and they fantastic instruments. And you won't get as good a guitar today, mainly because of the kind of woods which they were using then, which just don't exist anymore, um, and the supply of the woods and Brazilian and all this sort of stuff which you can't use anymore, um, and just that perhaps they were using really good stock of things. So the top models in the 60s were great, um, but lots of the lower tier, mid to lower tier models, perhaps, you know, the sort of, I can't think of brands off the top of my head, but you could get a local made in Britain sort of, a Fender copy, for example, and the strings might be a mile off the fretboard. You know, George's Futurama, for example, before he got his Gret Duerjet in Hamburg, he's playing his Strat copy. I've tried to play one of those I've played years ago in a shop, and they're not very easy to play. You know, it's not like playing a Strat. So nowadays, you can go in and get the cheapest Squire Strat, and although it's not as good, obviously, as a top Squire or a Fender or something, it, the, it's more accessible and easier to play. So the lower tier of instruments today are made to a higher quality than the lower tier back then. But conversely, I'd argue that the top tier back then was the complete best of the best. And much as the way you were saying about the Premier drum kit still having that sound, even the cheap little combo amplifiers of the 60s, things like Wem amps and Westminster's um, little Burns amps and things like that, some of them are the best sounding, coolest, vibest amps there are. And you can get amazing sounds because that technology in those days was all valve amps. So those things are phenomenally good. Um, whereas the cheapest amp you'd get today, some digital modeling. I'm not a big fan of digital modeling. I'm not a big fan of all these profiles because I feel like they're just an impression of something. Yes. It's a photocopy of a sound. Now, however good they are, to most people, yeah, take a scan, print, a photocopy of the Mona Lisa. Great, yeah, you can see it. But then you put it next to the real painting and it's not as good. Yes, you know? I hear you. Um, yeah. that, uh, people have different opinions and different genres of music and there's pros and cons for all sorts of stuff. But I would argue that you'd still, if you plug an old 50s or 60s Gibson or Fender into an old 50s or 60s Fender amp, Marshall amp, Vox amp, you know, Gibson amp or something, then that gives a sound which you will not get <laughs> out of something you'd walk into a shop and get today. Um. Yeah, there's a so there's two there's a, sort of two two final areas that I just want to cover. Um, so the the first one is is pickups because this is something I don't know a great deal about at all. Um, so was. And and again, there doesn't seem to have been much progress in pickups, and I, I could be completely wrong. But um, what was what was happening? That you've mentioned a few um, a few sort of classic models of pickup that seem to they're, they're the models that I recognise that are still being produced today. So yeah. how did was it was it literally just sort of P ninety hum and then a, a humbucker and and that was kind of it? What what was happening in the world of pickups through this time? Pretty much exactly that. Um, if we take Gibson's, for example, and then the Epiphones that the Beatles used as well, you had the P90, which was Gibson's first pickup. Um, the humbucker, the pattern applied for Gibson humbucker, was, and from a bunch of research, I mean, they're so well sought after nowadays and stuff, but, you know, we do at the magazine and other things. Um, I, I also, I should mention, probably mention for the start, we'll do a piece you could perhaps put in at the start. <laughs> I also do a YouTube channel called Tone Twins TV, where we focus in on loads of vintage guitars, equipment, getting old sounds, trying to dig down that rabbit hole of what makes the great sound and mm -hmm. so on. In my opinion, the P90 was a, is a fantastic pickup. The humbucker, name kind of indicating why, was Gibson's attempt to make a P90 sound, but to get rid of some of that hum. You know, that background noise that you get with a single coil pickup. Because the, the two coils, you've basically got two pickups together, one's wired out of phase, so they cancel out the hum. It's that simple. Humbucker, that's what it is. <laughs> Gretsch were actually working on um, a very similar pickup at the same time. You get the Filtertron humbucker um, with on the Gretsch guitars. Um, 
and that was being developed pretty much exactly the same time um, by a guy called Ray Butts, who then sold it to Gretsch and they used it. Um, and he was working on it at the same time as uh, Seth Lever with the Gibson P90. The reason why things haven't moved forward, and it's arguably true of guitar design, pickup design, amp design to a degree, um, we as a culture fell in love with those sounds. And again, this is why the Beatles and the equipment they used is so culturally important. That, you know, a, a pickup, and they do occasionally, a company will be really brave and try and make something completely different, perhaps arguably technically better. You know, I mean, in the 80s, EMG brought out these battery-powered active humbuckers that you'll see in guitars and that Metallica use and stuff. Um, and they got a really sharp sound and super clear. But people want the same sounds of the bands of the 60s and 70s. So try as these companies might, guitarists and producers and stuff, we're such a retrograde bunch. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, re the reason stuff hasn't moved forward is the audience want that old stuff, you know? And it's that simple. People want to play a Strat. They want it to sound like an old Strat. They want to play a Les Paul. They want it to sound like a Les Paul. A few years ago, Gibson nearly went bankrupt because they kept doing these, amongst other bad business practices, but they kept trying to push the envelope forward. They brought out these robot guitars, which self-tuned oh, and had all these <laughs> built-in effects and all this, you could plug it straight into a USB socket into the computer and control all these things. Or Line 6 brought out a guitar, which in theory, had every great guitar built into it. And you turn a knob and it's a Strat sound and turn another knob and it's a Les Paul sound. And, and guitarists pretty much unanimously went, nah, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're just so stuck culturally in the old sounds, the old stuff, that that's what we chase, rightly or wrongly. That's, that, that was my last question. And I'm so happy okay. that you've answered it. Um, it was that's what what I was going to ask, and it's um, it's just fascinating. I mean, every every time I have a conversation with somebody for this podcast, it reaffirms to me why the sixties was is a period that I want to talk about so much, and I just. I I may you may not have we're doing this on FaceTime just so everybody knows and I I might have a sort of resting bitch face but I'm smiling on the inside everything <laughs> you're saying I absolutely yeah, yeah. love it I've, I it's it's just surreal how so many happy accidents and um, beautiful um, things happened throughout the sixties in the Beatles career. And it's it's so hard to talk about the 60s. You can't talk about the 60s without talking about the Beatles. You know, they have to be a hugely central yeah. part of everything we're discussing. And so many... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, just lovely accidents happened that have informed popular music ever since. And I, I Completely. just love it. I, I love it. And I, I, I hope that some of the things that both you and I are doing can help bring uh, a, a sort of a younger audience to understand why why it's so important to to sort of study that era and to look over it um and and uh, appreciate what influence it had and uh, yeah I love it you've 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 re-energized me and it's it's amazing <laughs> oh great like you say it's a brilliant way of putting it happy accidents through the 60s you develop, you're the start of the 60s, you've got skiffle music and pretty much no electric guitars being used. Well, they were, but, no, you know, softly and acoustically and clean. And then the end of the 60s, you've got Jimi Hendrix and Cream and Free, you know, and the Beatles with all the revolutionary stuff they did. And it's all these accidents, both in the studio and out of the studio and technology developing and moving and so on. Um, amazing, really. Before, yeah, so before we finish, if you could just uh, let everybody know where they can find you. I mean, I've been following you on Instagram and you're doing, um, I, uh, you you might be offended by this, but a very similar thing to me, but guitar-wise, which is very cool. And I think a lot of people will be really interested to, to check out what you're doing because it's, uh, it's very, very cool. Oh, cheers. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I love the stuff you're doing and it's, I think we've hit a sort of a kindred place just in different instruments, perhaps. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I've done session work and gigs and touring that for years, obviously. And I'm now trying to focus more on the recording side of things. 
Um, I'm hoping to, and this is a this is a world exclusive for you, so you can direct the followers, and it'll be interesting to see how many people follow, because there's currently me and one friend following this new account. My Instagram is Ed Vintage Guitars and Amps, um, but if people want to search on Instagram, and you'll hopefully want to do this yourself now, um, follow Vintage Tone Factory. Okay. Um, that's going to be my sort of new enterprise where I put my studio to use full of vintage amps, certainly, and guitars for people who can come in and do sessions, or I can do remote sessions for people. But, And the idea is that it's a vintage reamping service, so folk can record their um, own tracks at home, nail them properly into their computer using software and so on. If they then have a clean DI'd version, which lots of the software lets you capture, they can send that to me and I can reamp it through some tasty Valve Mic 60s preamps and so on, you know, and they can choose into a you know, vintage Fender Basement or a Marshall or a vintage Vox or so on, you know, and can get as geeky as people like, perhaps stick some vintage <laughs> fuzz or tube screamer pedals in the way, some old compressors and so on, and send them back the fully, you know. So instead of paying for a whole studio day somewhere and then having to pay to hire perhaps this you know, great vintage amp, which they might use just for one track or, you know, um, people can send me the tracks, have it all done remotely and hopefully at a fraction of the cost to them. So that's going to be the plan with that. May, may, may not work, but I'm hoping it does. Um, so that's Vintage Tone Factory. So if you search for that on Instagram, hopefully that'll come up. I'm in the process of putting a website together for that. Uh, you can hopefully, you can catch me on YouTube as well. I work with another friend, uh, Hugh, another guitar journalist from guitar.com and Guitar Magazine. We produce a show called Tone Twins TV, where we feature a ton of vintage gear. We look into the intricacies of vintage guitars and amps and sounds and so on. Um, so that's great fun. And then just keep an eye out in Guitar Magazine and guitar.com for the reviews and the articles that I write here and there, you know. Um, and if anyone needs a session guitarist, I'm always available <laughs> as well. I will. Um, I'll put links to all of this stuff in the show notes, um, so you guys, uh, uh, everything will be there for everybody to to go and click on. Um, and I'm. I know. Um, we've we've sort of been back and forth in on emails about your your sort of new new uh, reamping venture, and I'm quite excited to see how that all pans out. Um, and uh, I mean, one of the things I I think is amazing is is the uh photos of old guitars i i just love i love the look of your instagram and the way that the guitars look and i love seeing it's it be, i suppose because i'm a drummer and i'm not used to looking at guitars it's just uh it's one of those things that um makes me smile <laughs> i really enjoy it oh great cheers yeah I'm, I'm much the same i mean i it sounds like a a loving pat on the back contest but i i thoroughly enjoy your content and being such a beatles nerd I absolutely love not um, reading the clip. So when you put up some new tracks or you do a little snippet from one of your sessions, especially the Beatles stuff, I will deliberately not read it and try and play the Beatles songs in my head so I can completely nail what song you're getting from the drums alone. And <laughs> uh, so far I'm like 10 out of 10 for nerdy factor because I'm getting them all right, which means Amazing. you're doing a phenomenally good job. So yeah, well done. <laughs> I, love it. I need to do some more obscure ones for you and test you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. if you start doing like Blue Jay Way or something, then I'm... <laughs> um smashing right well i thank you so much for taking so long uh taking so much time out to talk to us and i hope um i mean you're just a, a such a wealth of knowledge and i um i thank yeah thank you for coming and speaking to us about uh, all this guitar stuff absolute pleasure and hopefully perhaps like i say if we do get questions in or at a later date perhaps when the uh vintage reamping stuff sort of kicks into gear we could perhaps be back and talk more in detail about those sort of things guitar tones reamping and uh all that sort of stuff. Hope. Absolutely, I would. I would absolutely love it. It's a. Uh, it's nice. It's refreshing not to talk about drums. <laughs> I'll happily talk about drums. Love drums as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Another another conversation. Yeah, definitely. We'll have that later on because we need to talk about drum microphones. Yes, that's it. So we'll do a we'll do a fake a fake goodbye and then just continue talking. So yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much, Joe. Take care, mate. Cheers. 
So there we go. Um, and a little insight into how the the podcast is made. I, I got on really, really well with Ed. Um, he gave me a little virtual tour of his uh, studio and he has some ridiculous gear. Um, I mean, ridiculous gear. Um, so definitely go and check him out on Instagram. It's Ed underscore vintage underscore guitars and amps. Um, he's on my friends list if you want to look through there. Um, and uh, I'll link to it in the in the show notes too. I mean, he has some amazing studio equipment and guitars and amplifiers and microphones. And uh, as he mentioned, he's got a reamping service that is on the way. So um, I will post about that on my Instagram um, as and when that happens. Okay, so uh, in two weeks time, I will be chatting with um, a friend of mine whose name is Neil Innes. Um, and he's based up in Leeds here. And um, he has a studio uh, which is all based around exactly what we're talking about. So it's all tape machines. He's got a, uh, I think it's a Swedish broadcast desk um, that was actually used to record uh, Michael Kiwanuka's first album, um, which is one of my favourite albums. I I couldn't believe when (laughs) when he told me. It was amazing. Um, There's going to be another two-parter because Neil is... uh, it just loves vintage style recording. He's kind of like my recording guru. Um, so when I was setting up my studio, anything I, I wanted to know, you know, what gear should I buy? Where should I buy it from? Um, Neil was the chap that I was my first port of call to ask. Um, he's got some amazing stuff and his uh, mentality, he's very humble and he makes it out that he doesn't know a lot, but about recording and it just sort of he sort of fumbles his way through but that's not the case at all he knows so much um whether it's just instinct or you know research knowledge i'm not sure he just he's uh he's brilliant um anyway neil's studio is called ata records and um, so you can go and check that out um and i'll talk about more about that in the in the episode but go and have a listen it's kind of um 1960s funk and soul um and there's a bit of jazz in there as well um neil plays bass on all the records as well as um recording them all um and he's got a really interesting blog on the ata records website about um sort of the things that happen in in sort of vintage style recording studios so yeah go and check that out um which just leaves me to say if you want to get in contact with me I've, in fact i've had a lot of people get in contact with me over the last couple of weeks so yeah thanks very much for that um if you want to get in contact my email address is joe at all you need is drums.com and you can go to all you need is drums.com to sign up for my stems weekly stems mailing list um i want to say a big thank you to joe kane for my intro and outro music um my intro outro music the the intro and outro music to this uh, community podcast <laughs> um and my good friend david henshaw for continually supplying me with fantastic artwork um i'm so lucky to be surrounded by lovely people um anyway so have a beautiful couple of weeks and i will speak to you soon goodbye goodbye